This is Deuteronomy 12, starting at 1 to 18. The one place of worship is called. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from amongst all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God has given you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your manservants and maidservants, and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment, or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Nevertheless, you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat as much of the meat as you want, as if it were gazelle or deer, according to the blessing the Lord your God gives you. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and oil, or the firstborn of your flocks, or herds and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place that Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, and the Levites from your towns, and you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. And we give thanks for this word, the word of God. Thank you for reading for us so carefully. Somebody skillful able to put this uh, microphone in place for me. Do you know what to do? I have 
briefings from my suitcase to throw to you if you stay awake for the next few minutes. Uh, Smarties, something else, and cashews. Um, I'm going to add the little prayer that we prayed um, perhaps last night, or perhaps it was this morning. Let's bow our heads and just pray one more short prayer. Father, thank you for the day you've given. Thank you for the word you've given. Thank you for your steadfast love. And what we know not, we pray you will teach us. What we have not, we pray you will give to us. What we are not, we pray you would make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Well, we come to the third of our sessions in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and um, we come to a section which is really um, huge. It's basically chapters 12 to 26. How many chapters is that? 22, roughly? So, no, that can't be right. 12 to 26. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And um, it's a challenging thing to do because we looked at the first four chapters last night, which are basically recapping the journey. And then we looked this morning at 5 to 11, which is the relationship with God. And now we're coming to really the unpacking of his will in detail. Uh, I've always liked the story of the police cadets who are doing an exam. And uh, the first question says something like this. You're traveling with your fellow officer. And um, as you're traveling in your car, you come to a massive accident. Uh, about eight cars have bashed into one another. And uh, one of them has hit a fire, uh, a fire hydrant and water is pouring into the air. One of the cars has hit a shop front and people have already begun to move in and loot. A huge crowd has gathered and uh, a big dog has just bitten a small boy and a young man has just grabbed a lady's uh, handbag and he's running off into the distance. And uh, just behind the crowd in the accident, you see that in one of the other buildings, a fire has just uh, appeared on the third floor. Question, what is your first course of action? And one of the students put, carefully remove uniform and mingle with crowds. <laughs> and uh, I've always thought that is such a sort of tempting thing to do, isn't it, when everything gets too difficult. But uh, these chapters that we're going to look at are going to really show how God's word hits the road, hits the ground, and deals with very practical things. So we've seen the recap, we've seen the privilege and responsibility of covenant, and now we come to the details of life. Every now and again, you must sit in church and say to yourself, I wish the preacher would now tell us specifically what to do. We've had the principle. What does it actually mean for me this coming week? And these chapters are very concrete. Now, when we come to these chapters 12 to 26, which is our third segment of the book, I want to suggest to you that 12 to 26 unpack the Ten Commandments. Sometime, if you ever go back to read the book of Deuteronomy, you may see that, you may agree with me, that these chapters seem to be unpacking the Ten Commandments. Not everybody who's written on the book of Deuteronomy agrees with this. But let me just give you some examples. Chapter 12, which is the first of the chapters, speaks about worshipping God, which sounds very like commandment one. Deuteronomy 13 speaks about idolatry, which sounds very like commandment two. Deuteronomy 14 is about your identity, your distinctiveness. 
It sounds like taking the name of the Lord for yourself. Deuteronomy 15.16 is about feasts, which sound a bit like Sabbath. Deuteronomy 17.18 is about authority figures, no longer mum and dad, but now judge and king and priest and prophet. Deuteronomy 19-21 is about war, which sounds a little bit commandment 6, about killing and murder. Deuteronomy 22-24 is about marriage, which sounds a little bit like the commandment on marriage and not adultery. And then Deuteronomy 25-26 is a whole spray of things which sound very much like commandments 8, 9 and 10. So do you think there is possibly a case that this is following broadly the Ten Commandments? I think, I think there is a case. I remind you that Israel needed laws about things like taxes, military service, because Israel was a nation living in the land surrounded by nations. It had to organize itself. And I remind you also that Israel needed laws about priests and sacrifices and feasts because Israel was a church. Did you know that? Israel was a nation and Israel was a church and they needed appropriate laws. So the teaching that we're going to look at in these chapters quite quickly, we're just going to select a few bits, is very profitable for us we know that all scripture is profitable. It will tell us things about God. It will tell us things about his holiness. It will tell us things about obedience. But it may not be specifically for us because we're no longer in the land like Israel was. We're now the church scattered all over the world. And we no longer have the ceremonies and the feasts and the sacrifices and the temple because all of that has come to its fulfillment in Christ. So now I want to give you, off the cuff, a three-minute lesson in what's called biblical theology. And um, some of you will fall asleep in this, but some of you will get it, and I hope you will get it. I want you to imagine behind me is a large black square, oblong. And um, I want you to imagine that the bottom left corner has a T, and the top left corner has a T, and the top right corner has a T, and the bottom right corner has a T. Could you follow that? There's a T at each corner. The first T down here stands for text. You need to look at the text. So if you're going to preach on Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at the text. The second T stands for then and there. In other words, what was happening at the time in that place? And the third T stands for transformation. How did Jesus change everything? And the fourth T stands for today. So imagine you're doing David and Goliath. You look at the text, you discover that actually David wasn't the hero, but God was. You discover that it was a time where the Philistines were threatening to take over God's people and God's people needed a rescuer and God decided to use David as an instrument. And then you come to the transformation and you think to yourself, there is a much bigger battle fought by a much greater servant for a much greater outcome. And that, of course, is Jesus. And then you think down to today what will I say to the people that I'm talking to? 
well, I'll tell them to be thankful that there is somebody who's won a much greater victory and that we get to take a part in that by faith and that this victory is much bigger than all the battles of the world, etc. In other words, you must quickly follow the four T's if you're going to be good in biblical theology. If you go straight from text to today, you'll have a very self-centered congregation. You'll just have climb the mountain, we must climb our mountains. It's just too cheesy and silly. If you go straight from the then and there to today, you'll just moralize people because you'll say, there's Deuteronomy, you know, they're about to enter the promised land, they don't do very well, we're going to do better. You've got to follow the four T's, text, then and there, transforming work of Jesus today, and you will then do a very good exercise, even if you mentally do that for one minute, you'll have a much better view of the Bible. Did any of that make sense? So as we come to um, chapters 12 to 26, let's begin with chapter 12, and I can't read it again to you, we had it well read for us, but this is basically something to do with worship and commandment number one, and it begins by saying, You've got to get rid of all traces of idolatry. We, we talked about this before. Sometimes the drastic removal of evil, like cancer from a body, like a pedophile from a school. It's not a game. Get rid of it. And God says, get rid of the traces. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 4 to 7, worship in the way that I say to worship. So find the place where I say to meet and find the sacrifice I say to bring. You can't make up what you want to do. John Chapman, who was a great evangelist and a great communicator and was um, one of the greatest preachers I ever heard, he used to say as an illustration that when you go to morning tea or supper tonight and somebody comes across the room holding for you a cup of tea, white tea with two sugars and says here you are I made this for you and you actually like black coffee with no sugar you've got to find a way of basically saying to the person this is very nice of you to do this but it's not exactly what I was hoping for and Chapo said people assume that they can just worship God any way they want and if they're sincere he'll be happy that actually we must listen to what he says in order to do what he says, which will please him. Does that make sense? So God won't be fitted into our programs. We must fit into his programs. We must remove all the um, stuff which will get in the way of our fellowship, and we must put in place what he asks us to. And uh, you'll notice that his aim for his people is joy and the glory of his name. Can I just say as an aside that uh, one of the big questions in the Bible is where does obedience come in the Bible, in the Christian life? How important is obedience? And I want to suggest to you that obedience doesn't really contribute to our security, but it does contribute to our joy and to his glory. So I'll give you a silly illustration. When you get small children, and some of you know what this is like, and you plan to go on holidays, you don't get the children to drive to the holiday destination. 
and you don't let the children even sit in their own seat and do their own seat belts when they're very little. The adult takes the wheel and drives the vehicle and the adult puts the child in the seat and puts the seat belt on because that's going to make the child secure. Can the child, however, contribute to the joy of the journey? Yes, the child could contribute to the joy of the journey by not fighting with his or her brother or sister in the back seat. I know this will not. Is that your balloon? <laughs> anyway, I needed something to keep you with me. It was difficult to arrange, but there we are. Um, when the child is put securely in the seat and taken to its destination, the security depends on the adult. Okay, but the child can contribute to the joy of the journey, as indeed the child can contribute to the misery of the journey. You know what I'm talking about? So what we want to say is that by being obedient, it doesn't make us more secure. Obviously, if we were going to leap from the car and dive out the window, it would be dangerous. But our obedience doesn't contribute to our security. Our obedience to God contributes to his glory and to our joy. That's, I think, the way the Bible speaks. Security has got to do with salvation and grace and his faithfulness. But our obedience contributes to his glory and to our joy. I'll give you that as an aside. Then God says in chapter 12, when you found the place to meet, and uh, you've also brought the right sacrifices, and of course one day it would be Jerusalem, that's where they would meet, and that's where the temple would be built, but that's well down the track. He then says, I want you to enjoy as much meat as you like. Okay, this is a very problematic verse for vegans, but there we are. It's a meat lovers chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 12. But don't eat the blood, because the blood is a symbol of life, and that is, of course, to be t taken very seriously. How do we respond to Deuteronomy 12, which I've just quickly summarized as Christians? Well, of course, we too must listen to what God says about worshipping him, because he says in John chapter 4, we must worship him in spirit and truth. We can't make stuff up and just say we'll worship him any way we like. And, uh, of course, what place do we meet God if we want to meet him? Anybody know? Where would we meet God? Well, we primarily meet him in Jesus. That's where we find him. That's why Jesus says he's the temple. I mean, we might uh, hear about him in a building. We might hear about him at a church. We might hear about him in a pub. But we're going to really meet God by coming to Jesus. And... Um, what sacrifice do we need in order to approach him safely? It's the cross. That's the sacrifice. We can approach him because of the cross. So um, you'll see that God's invitation to come and worship him is a very inclusive. It's for the whole world, but it's very exclusive. It's bound up with Jesus. So that's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. And uh, in the outline, I think we're on page, is it 14 in your booklets? Have I got that right? 12, page 12, okay. Now let's think quickly about um, chapter 14, which is, I think, connected to commandment number three, 
being very distinctive. Now, I wonder if somebody who's got Deuteronomy at hand would read out in a loud voice chapter 14, 1 to 2, because this is a very unusual two verses. And if you were having to study them in your growth group, you would really need to think hard about what to do with them. But would somebody read out chapter 14, 1 to 2 in a loud voice? You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourself nor shave the front of your head to the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Thank you very much. So in the face of death, says God to his people, don't cut yourself or shave your head. Well, what a weird thing to read. What a weird thing to read. And it sounds as though the people around in the face of death would cut themselves or shave them, shave their head. Now, why do you think in the face of death pagan people would cut themselves? I can think of two reasons. Can you think of one? Why would people in the days of the Israelites around the area be faced with people who, looking at death, decided that they would cut themselves? Why would they do that? I'm, I'm thinking of pagans who cut themselves in the face of the loss of a loved one. They lose somebody. They're distressed. A lot of it's got to do with grief, don't you think? Cutting yourself because of grief. The other possibility that you would cut yourself, can anyone think? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Mm, possible. Yeah, yeah, possible. Okay. This is a way of appeasing the gods. <coughs> I'll cut myself and so he will have to take notice, which is a little bit like how to get God's attention. So we've got these pagan gods up there in the sky. Somebody has died. We think to ourselves, one, this is absolutely terrible. My grief is so terrible, I slash myself. The other possibility is how do I get the gods to protect me? How do I get the gods to look after us? So we slash ourselves as a way of impressing them. And you remember this was um, 1 Kings 19 with the prophets of Baal who couldn't get Baal to respond and so they slashed themselves as a way of getting him to take notice. Now God's people not to be like this at all. Deuteronomy 14. God's people are not to despair in the face of death. And the Old Testament believers, of course, did have a fairly shadowy confidence in an afterlife. Can you think of an example in the Old Testament? which gives the impression that the believers in the Old Testament believed in a future beyond the grave. Job, thank you. Yeah, I know that my Redeemer lives, and even though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Remarkable verse. Think of a psalm like 23, which finishes up. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. And I will, says the psalmist, be in the presence of God. What does it say at the end of Psalm 23? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 16 talks about one day being in his presence, in the inheritance. Isaiah 25 talks about a great future. Isaiah 35 talks about the end of death. Uh, Daniel 12 talks about a resurrection up from the dust. So you've got all these passages in the Old Testament that have got a sort of a vague hope of the future. But here's the question. 
Deuteronomy is before the Psalms and before the prophets. So what did they know in the days of Moses about the future? Stay with me. The answer is, according to Jesus, that when Moses met God at the burning bush, God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. I'm in a covenant with these people which will never break. And we know that um, Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, said this is a proof that there is a resurrection to come. Because when God enters into a covenant with you, especially one that is signed by the blood of Jesus, it'll never break. If God holds his hand down to you and you put your hand into his by faith, that relationship will never break, my friends. It cannot. It'll go through this world, it'll go down the grave, it'll go up the other side and it'll go on to glory. It cannot break. It's a covenant sealed in blood. So that's why you see in Deuteronomy 14, God's people are not to grieve the same way. And when you think about how Jesus has transformed death completely, in fact, the New Testament says he's brought the resurrection to light. And so we're now in a far better position than the Israelites in knowing about resurrection and the future because we've had some reports of his resurrection with a new body for a new creation. And the promises that I will take you, says Jesus, to be with me, that where I am, you may be also. So we are hugely illumined by Jesus. That's the point. So when it comes down to today, we're not going to run funerals like pagans, are we? We're not going to just talk about the past and say the person was great, they played golf, they looked after their garden, they were great. And now he's up in the great garden in the sky, putting the occasional bed on the dogs. You know, we won't talk like this. It's all just fiction. The Christian funeral will be looking back with thanks, but it will be looking forward with a very concrete hope. So Deuteronomy 14, 1-2, just two verses, is actually so interesting to discuss at a growth group. How does the unbeliever see death, and how does the believer see death? Now the next bit in chapter 14, very quickly, has got to do with the um, clean and unclean animals. And this is a very fun passage to read, if ever you want to read a passage out loud. In fact, if somebody read... Deuteronomy 14, 3 to 28, 1 out loud, uh, we would be smiling because there's this long list of weird things that you can eat and weird things you can't eat. Now, what is the issue? When God says you can eat the owl, but you can't eat the cuckoo, you can eat the emu, but you can't eat the kangaroo, what's he talking about? And some people have said, oh, it must be unclean animals that will do you damage if you eat them. But that's not possible because when we get to the New Testament, you can eat any meat of any kind. Some people have said, oh, maybe this is what the pagans liked eating, and so we must turn our back on the pagan preference and just go with something else. But that doesn't work because it's complete guesswork. We don't know what pagans ate in their daily rituals. No, no, this chapter is teaching us that God decides who his clean people are and who his unclean people are. Remember Deuteronomy 7? I have loved you and I've chosen you to be my people in the midst of an unclean people. So this 
bird issue of the different animals. He's simply saying that God decides. Now, the implication for the people of Israel was that every time they went to the supermarket, now walking along the shelves, the, you know, the guy would be there pushing the supermarket trolley and his wife would be telling him to put things back. And uh, but he would put in some emu and she'd say, no, no, we don't eat emu. Find the kangaroo aisle. And then he'd put in some cuckoo and she'd say, no, no, we eat owl, not cuckoo, or whatever I'm talking about. And um, in the end, you see, the supermarket shopping ritual would remind the Israelites every single time that they were God's clean people. When they sat down to the meal, they were God's chosen people. This was a brilliant way of God showing his people that they were distinct and special and chosen. The last bit of Deuteronomy 14 has got to do with tithes and gifts, especially giving your money for the support of one another. So chapter 14 says, you're to collect your tithes and your offerings to look after the Levites, the foreigners who come to you, the fatherless and the widows. In other words, you're going to be a people who look after each other. And that, of course, would be very impressive to the pagan nations. They would say something like this, you know, if you become one of the Israelites, you really get looked after. They take care of the fatherless. They take care of the widow. They don't get turfed out. And so this was God's wisdom to help God's people think, first of all, about life and death, being special, <coughs> chosen, clean, but also taking care of one another. And can I say as an aside, I don't think that the people of God in the Old Testament or the New Testament are ever really asked to solve the financial problems of the world. We just don't have the resources to do it. Our treasure for the world is the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we as individuals can't do anything we can that we want to do for caring for the needy. Because we could be like the Good Samaritan and find somebody by the side of the road and decide that we're going to invest very heavily in their welfare. But we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that the church should be solving all the economic problems of the world. You don't get that in the Old Testament and you don't get it in the New, but you do get in the Old and the New that the believers, God's people, should look after one another. So I hope you can hear the tension there. We should be looking after one another, but there may be opportunities that people have to do something beyond. And if you are going to give your million dollars away, I would urge you to think very carefully about giving it to gospel work. Because lots of unbelievers will give lots of money to non-gospel things, but only believers will give money to gospel things. And so it's very important for us to take that carefully. Okay, are you still with me? Anybody still with me? Just give a little wave if you're still with me. Both of you, great, wonderful. <laughs> Let's quickly think about Deuteronomy 20, which I think relates to Commandment 6. This is the chapter that talks about invading the promised land. And when I preached on this at my church in North Sydney, a couple left the church. They said to me at the end of the sermon, if that's the God you believe in, we do not believe in that God. And they left and they never came back. So the chapter needs very careful handling, especially in the day where people have very low views of God and very high views of human rights. That would be more a pagan perspective, wouldn't it? We need to, therefore, take uh, Deuteronomy 20 very, very carefully. 
I want to remind you as we come to the chapter and God tells his people to move into the land that he's promised to give them. Here are some things to remember. One, God owns the promised land. It's not just private territory. Second, he waited 400 years for the people in the land to turn and respond to him, but they didn't. Third, he communicated to the people in the promised land that he was great and gracious. And we know this because when they sent the spies into the promised land and they met Rahab the prostitute, she said, the whole country is trembling because of Yahweh, because we have heard what he did to the people of Egypt and how he parted the Red Sea and brought you through the wilderness. So the, the message of Yahweh had been heard. Fourth, Judgment or justice is very real in the Bible. We must never apologize for God's justice. We must never give the impression that when God brings his justice day or his judgment day, he's going to be embarrassed. That he's going to be sitting in the corner somewhere looking uneasy. No, no, God will be praised on the day of justice when suddenly everything is put right. And evil that's been left undealt with is dealt with. And people who've been badly treated are vindicated. It will be a great day. And in the book of Revelation, the word hallelujah only comes four times in the book of Revelation. And all four times it comes after the judgment day. So God will be praised for his justice. Fifthly, he is merciful. He said in chapter 20 that when you go into the promised land, you're to make an offer of peace to the cities around the edge because they may not have heard as others have heard. Make them an offer of peace. But, and this is where the judgment comes, the people of the land, their time is up. It's time to take the land. And finally, this promised land is a preview of God giving to his people a new creation and a new earth. So when the time comes for the people of God in Israel, to move into the promised land, all of that should lie behind this moving in. And when God was getting the people ready in chapter 20, verse 1, first of all, he said to them, I will be with you. You know how when there's a big AFL game and a big NRL game and a big tennis game and a big whatever, you can often imagine the athletes are saying their prayers, oh God, Help us to win. First time I've prayed for 20 years, but I really want you to give us a win. And there's another person on the other side saying, oh God, please give us a win. I haven't prayed for 20 years, but please give us a win. You can't really walk up to either of them, can you, and say, I, I just know for a fact God's going to give you a win. But here, at the invasion of the promised land, the priest is to go up to the people and say, God is with you. He's going to help you, enable you. This is going to be a victory. And um, you, no chaplain would ever have done that in World War I or World War II. No chaplain would ever have dared to say, I'm telling you troops, we're going to win. They might have prayed for it, but they wouldn't have announced it. And then we read in chapter 20 that God says to the people of Israel, and they're not really professional soldiers, he says, you can go home if you haven't finished building your house. And you can go home if you've got a vineyard that needs to be looked after. And you can go home if you've got engaged and you were hoping to go through with the wedding. And you can go home if you're frightened. So that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? 
Because you see, God doesn't need numbers for a victory. It doesn't matter whether he's got three soldiers or three million. So he actually gives them opportunity to head home. Now, we cannot domesticate Deuteronomy 20. It'll never sound sweet. They move in and people are killed. And it's a unique war after a unique wait for a unique God. And God is honoured in the taking of the land and the people are blessed. Notice that the Bible is descriptive about war. That is, it tells us about a war that took place when the people moved into the promised land. But it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell us to go and conduct wars. The Quran is prescriptive. It tells Islamic people that they should conduct wars. And that's why somebody has said that uninformed Islam is more peaceful, but informed Islam is less peaceful. And the internet is bringing the Quran, and especially those chosen passages, to the minds of, of thousands and millions who are now more aware of what the Quran actually prescribes, not just describes. The end of chapter 20, God says, when you get into the land and you've won the victory, don't cut down the fruit trees. You can cut down all the trees to make your houses, but don't cut down the fruit trees because you see God wants his people to live and enjoy the land. Now, what do we as Christians do with Deuteronomy 20? First of all, we know from Romans 13 that there is a time to go to war, especially to defend your country. So, you know, we, we shouldn't be complete pacifists as if nobody will fight for the country. <coughs> but the Bible doesn't tell us to go to war unless we are provoked. So we're not to be an invasional country. But we do have the permission, in fact, the encouragement to go to war if we must protect our country. But there is a fight that we should fight, according to the Bible, and that's the good fight. The good fight of the faith. We must fight the fight of the faith. We must stand for what God has said and done because the world needs to know. Now I think uh, finally, and I'm coming to the end very quickly, in Deuteronomy 21 to 24, we come to what really is comparable to commandment number seven. And this has got a lot to do with marriage. And again, you need a great deal of care reading this. In fact, if I got somebody to read some of this, you would be kind of appalled by some of it. It sounds so bad. Chapter 21, of course, in Deuteronomy says that when you've um, basically gone to war and you see a pretty girl who's been left behind, she's the consequence of war, and you want to take her for your wife, you can take her for your wife. That just sounds terrible. Chapter 21 says that if you've got a son who's being disobedient to parents on a constant basis, you can put the son to death. Well, we don't know what to do with that. Deuteronomy 22 says, um, if there is a, a girl who gets married and you want to raise questions about her virginity, you can do that. And chapter 24 says, you know, if you want to divorce your wife, you've got permission to divorce your wife. And we look at these verses and think, well, this is just terrible. But we need to look very carefully because actually... Although there are many verses that are confronting, 
There's a lot of wisdom behind the verses, and we need to take, as I said before, a very humble position. For example, if after a war there is a girl who is left completely stranded, God says to his people, you can take her for your wife, but you've got to make sure that she is highly respected. You've got to give her time to grieve. You've got to give her time to adjust. You're not to abuse her. You're not to hurt her. In the context of the pagan world in which they lived, this was absolutely revolutionary. God is introducing priorities and factors here which nobody ever in the pagan nations would have considered. So just before we dive in and say all these verses are terrible, just do some homework and you'll begin to realise that actually there's a lot of wisdom. When it comes to the son disobeying the parents, it's possible that this was a kind of an electric fence to make sure that um, the people of Israel and the families of Israel didn't disintegrate and basically self-implode. It's not certain whether this particular warning was ever implemented. But you can see that God is actually very caring about people and families and witness. The permission for divorce, which comes in chapter 24, seems very puzzling because it says that if a man divorces his wife and she goes and marries someone else and then that other person drops her, you cannot have her back. <laughs> and my brain says, wouldn't it be good if she came back? But actually what the verses are doing, they're trying to make sure that the wife is not treated like a piece of property who can be dismissed and recalled at the whim of a, of a chauvinistic pig. So there's a lot of wisdom that lies behind this. As one commentator says, she's not to be treated like a marital football, just kicked from one home to the other. No, no, no. If you say goodbye to your wife, you've got to have such respect for her that you cannot just call her back to yourself when you feel like it. That's what's lying behind these verses. I'm trying to say to you that we ought to be reading these verses more carefully in case we ever do read them and say to ourselves, it just sounds terrible. Because God is interested in protecting his people. And this compassion of God, which we see in these chapters, and we really do, finds its fulfillment at the cross. That's where we really see the compassion of God. That's where God shows his compassion for sinners and lawbreakers and brings in a solution, a saviour, and a bridegroom and this bridegroom of course makes new life forever possible so can you see that uh, as we come to the four t's that uh, we think of the third t jesus fulfills the worship chapter because he tells us who to worship how to worship and where it's him the cross jesus fulfills the death and life chapter because he solves the problem of death taking out the sting and raising, rising from the dead. Jesus fulfills the battle chapter because the real victory, the biggest victory in the universe was won at the cross. That's where a battle was won that was so great it makes all earthly wars and battles look like little fights in the sandpit. And the wedding marriage chapter is fulfilled in Jesus because he becomes the bridegroom for every person in the world who will look to him and put their hand in his. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all God's promises 
finding yes in Jesus. Okay, so there's just a little survey of some of the chapters of Deuteronomy that I think are unpacking some of the commandments, and we've only looked at four, but at some stage you might go back and read the chapters for yourself and think through the implications. Okay, sorry I've gone so long. We covered a lot as quickly as I could, and I think I've left you 10 minutes to get through lots of stuff.